GM. Let's go. Put it in the box. And make it 14 as he gets Anderson looking. Jacob DeGrom ties his career high with 14 strikeouts. Scooter and the big man bust the city in half, and the Mets lead it. A grand slam high off the right field foul pole. He's done it again. Francisco Lindor. That's driven to deep right field, headed toward the wall. That ball is out of here. Jeff McNeil breaks the ice with his 23rd home run of the year. Uh, amazing city. Podcast. What is going on, guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Maiden City Podcast. I am, of course, your host, Antonio Slater, as always. And today, it's not just going to be me. I actually have a very special guest. His name is Jack Ramsey, formerly of Mets Rise Online. I'm sure a lot of you guys have, have seen some of his work, some of his tweets gone, going all over the place. He's He's been on a lot of top stories over the last year or so. He was on the Beltron side. Uh, um, hiring when when that originally happened he's been on 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 the beat for a lot of things he's broken a lot of stuff and it's about time that he gets some more recognition so i'm excited to bring him along on this episode and and a lot more going forward as he's going to be a a regular on the show a regular on the podcast so it's going to be very exciting as if if you follow the twitter uh at the amazing city it's it's absolutely blown up recently ever since the announcement of him coming along Uh, it's we've jumped from I think it was like 85 or 88 followers. And last I checked, we were about 240. So we've tripled our followers in a, in a, you know, a day and a half since we, since we talked about it, made it official. So it's been absolutely tremendous uh, just seeing what's gone on on Twitter, the support and, and how, how, just how things have gone uh, in the last, I'd say 36 hours. So it's been absolute treat so far. And I'm looking forward to more exciting things in the future here at the amazing city. So, Make sure to follow along at, on Twitter at The Amazing City as well as Instagram. Follow Jack at Jack W. Ramsey. Man, this, this has been absolutely tremendous. So we have a lot to talk about in this one. We'll go on for about about an hour and a half. So uh, it's just stick along for the ride. This, this is a good episode. We talk about a lot of stuff. And Jack gives some tremendous insight on a lot of things from draft prospects to something that's to some of the things in the trade talks that he's heard and, and learned over the past couple of days. So just sit back. I don't know if you guys have to go you know, do some errands and just keep the podcast on. It's, it's a really good lesson. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy it and we'll see you guys next time. All right. So we are here with Jack Ramsey, formerly of Mets Rise Online, who is now a free agent writer of, uh, as of, what was it like this morning, you decided to, you, that, that happened. So he's now a free agent. He's on the block, right on, right on the tread deadline. There is another guy available. So we're going to lead in with something that you've been all, all over for, for quite some time. And that is the, the physical of, Kumar Rocker, the Mets first round draft pick that everyone is very excited for, obviously. So what is the latest going on with that? So it was, I originally reported about two or three days ago that an issue came up on the medicals of Kumar Rocker. Um, The Mets were being very tight-lipped about the extent of the issues, even down to, it was unclear if it was his shoulder, his knee, his elbow, not saying that he has issues with all those things, but just that it, it could have been anything. It could have been it could have been like organs, like they were incredibly tight-lipped about what exactly the issues pertain to. But Ken Davidoff confirmed today that it's an elbow issue for Rocker. Um, last I had heard about two or three days ago, the Mets were still expecting to bring Rocker in because even an injured Rocker rehabbing is still great value at the number 10 pick. 
And it would be a failure of sorts if you let, you know, arguably the most accomplished college pitcher of the 2000s slip all the way to you at 10 after him being the consensus top pick coming into the year. If you let him slip to you at 10 and then let medicals be the reason you don't sign him, it's contradictory of, you know, the major market team that Steve Cohen wants to see them become. You know, Steve wants to be the, the East Coast Dodgers. He wants to start building a dynasty while, you know, having a great on the field team in the bigs while also producing top prospects in a very quick and orderly manner. So letting Rocker not sign purely because of physicals is not something I see the Mets doing. I think he's still pen on paper by the August 1st deadline. Um, obviously, you're dealing with Scott Boris. That's a bit of an issue. You know, Scott reportedly, I've heard from a couple different people that Boris is adamant on six million. You know, Boris is not willing to step down from six million. And the Mets, in a sense, kind of played themselves into a corner here. Their ninth and other draft picks are all signed. You know, I was when I interviewed uh, their amateur scouting director, Mark Chimuta, for Mets Marais a couple of weeks ago. He told me they didn't expect any issues with anyone signing. And he told me that on the record, it's in it's in the, the article. And so far, they're 19 for 19 with the one outlier being Rocker. So they cannot really use an excuse here of saying, we need money to sign player X, Y, and Z to try and get Rock, Rocker to come down from his, from his mark. You know, it's now easily known with the bonuses being published by Baseball America, you know, who got what and how much money the Mets have left in their pool before they hit their overage fees. And they have enough to sign Kumar Rocker before hitting overage fees. You know, um, Mike Vassell, who many thought would go over slot with an eighth round pick, you know, Kylie McDaniels of ESPN said that on his best day, he's a second round pick. They got him to sign for his full eighth, eighth round slot of, I think it's $181,000. They got uh, Ziegler, the second round pick, to sign for about $700,000 under slot. They made it clear they were saving money to go over on Rocker. But now with the medicals popping up with an issue, they really can't negotiate their way down from $6 million because they've made it very, very clear that their goal was to bring him in and they have a $6 million to spend. And his, in his medicals, something else popped up with his right shoulder. It's supposedly very, very minor. It's something he's known of since at the, at the latest, his freshman year at Vanderbilt, the year he had his 19 strikeout no hitter. It's something that he's known of. It's something Vanderbilt knew of. It's something that was relatively well known in you know, the college baseball world and then the draft world. But, you know, the Mets are in a spot now with, you know, in a worst case, he needs Tommy John. You know, no one's saying he blew his UCL out. You know, Andy Martino reported that Tommy John is not on the table right now because the injury supposedly is not of that nature. But even in a worst case scenario, if he needs Tommy John, the Mets are in a spot where they want to get him 100% healthy. That's their goal now is how quickly they can get him 100% healthy. And, you know, I think people are going to quickly learn there's a difference between, you know, signing a contract and a financial understanding. They agreed to the $6 million. You know, that was well-known, well-reported first by Joel Sherman, I believe. But when you come to the fact of an injury that occurred before joining the Mets, you come down to in contract insurance. You know, who will do the procedure? You know, does do Rocker and Boris allow the Mets to have Mets doctors do it? Forrest has an army of his own medical advisors who might right. say, you know, Dr. X, Y, and Z out of Tampa is the best guy for this. You know, Rocker might have his own guys. You know, his dad was a famous NFL linebacker. 
his dad might say, hey, I know this guy. He's like people, I've never heard a bad thing about him. I want him to give Kumar a surgery. There's a lot of different angles at play here. And I think one of the big ones is if he does need surgery, even if it's not Tommy John and something more minor, just like an elbow scope or maybe like a nerve thing, you know, even if he does need surgery, you know, who, who's doing the procedure? Because the Mets probably want their doctors to do it while Boris might want one of his guys doing it. So there's a lot of, there's a lot that's going to need to be worked out, but I have no reason to believe he doesn't sign. Okay. So, I mean, like you said, worst case scenario, it's going to be another Tommy John. And we've seen that with Matt Allen go under Tommy John. And it seems like at this rate, every, every pitcher in the major leagues, nine times out of 10, they've gotten Tommy John at some point in their career from, you know, high school to college to minor leagues at some point they're getting Tommy John. So it's not going to be a, a huge issue if that's a, if that's the case, but obviously it's not something you want with your number 10 overall draft pick, but from everything you're saying, it seems like there's no real fears or concerns that by the August 1st deadline that he signed that, that contract. The way I look at it, the way I look at it is if he doesn't sign, he still needs to, he still has some sort of so he needs to rehab from that with Vanderbilt, go back into the draft as a college senior. He loses a lot of leverage financially with that. The Mets will pick up the 11th overall pick as a compensation for not signing Rocket. And his, his draft value plummets, you know, because if you're coming out as a 22-year-old senior starting pitcher, you don't have a ton of value, you know, because you're another year older, another year not in this team system, another year not on their um, – not on their projection path, you know, not on their development project. You know, the Mets have the Mets have a plan for every pitcher they draft. You know, they've they presented them all with those plans. They all know what the plans are. But those plans are very important to teams, you know, because they the Mets want Kumar Rocker at step A, B, and C by the start of next year. And then they have another they have somewhere else they want them to be by the deadline, another milestone by the end of the minor league season, so on and so forth. So each year a pitcher spends not in those systems. You know, that's why high school pitchers, aside from major school commitments, that's why nine times out of 10 high school pitchers go way over slot with their contracts. You know, like Hunter Barco, the Mets selected, I think the late 20s, late 20s, the year they drafted Matt Allen and he had a huge Florida commitment and he demanded way over slot because pitchers, you know, pitchers and advisors, agents know the value of how much of how many years these pitchers spend on development paths and the less time you spend on that path with the team the less value you have so if rocker goes back he has no value scott boris can say he's not signing all he wants but in the end he's technically still an advisor it comes down to rocker's decision and you know vanderbilt just kind of threw him back into the fire after throwing 15 total innings last year he threw 99 and two-thirds his freshman year, went to 15 last year, and then 122 this year. You know, I was telling someone earlier, I think the biggest lie you'll ever hear in any level of baseball is a college coach saying, I really love these kids. Because if you loved him and you cared about his future projections, you would not have done his elbow dirty like that. You know, so I think, I think in the end he signs just because of, how much is at stake for him? You know, he'd have to go out and have arguably the best collegiate season ever to still be a top 10, a consensus top 10 pick. Because then he'd be coming out at 22, pushing 23, another season of mileage on him. It just, it wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't make any sense to me. 
know, from the Mets perspective, if he walks, your worst case scenario is a lot better than Kumar's. Because your worst case scenario, you get the 11th overall pick as compensation. You can live with that because next year's draft is not as top heavy as this year's, but it's a lot deeper. So you're still getting good value at 11, and you'll have another another first round pick from wherever they finish this year. So you can live with that in the end. Is it ideal? No. And in some ways, you can see it as a failure because Kumar is a probably, you know, he, I think it was Baseball America's prospect ranking. He came in at 66 right off the bat. Right. You know, he's already a consensus top 100 guy. He's that kind of talent. You know, the Mets haven't had someone be drafted and jump into the top 100 since Kelly. And he's now the cons- consensus top five guy in baseball, just no matter what his first sample size of at bats say. He's a consensus top five guy in baseball. So if, there's a lot to lose for the Mets, but I think there's even more to lose from Rocker. And there's a lot of reason for both sides to figure it out. I mean, there's billboards of the dude already. Included. Like there are already billboards of him. There is a lot to lose on both sides. And I think way too much to lose for them to not sit down and figure it out. Yeah. I think when you, you throw in, and you brought up a great point there with the billboards that are right in Times Square with him and Jack Leiter, there's billboards all over the city that, I'm sure the Mets put some funds into the marketing for that. So you, with, with everything going on there, and like you said, worst case scenario, you end up with the number 11 overall pick. But I still think at that point, you're not going to get a guy who can be as talented and has as high of a ceiling as Kumar Rocker does. So I just feel like there's a lot on both sides here that makes it just make too much sense for them to not bring pen to paper by August 1st. I just think there's, there's way too much on the line for, for both sides here. And it does suck that you're going to have to deal with Boris. And if he's firm at 6 million, you're going to have to try to get that 6 million there. So we'll see what happens there. But I, I do tend to agree with you on this one, that it's not that big of a, a concern that there is no report of a deal yet. I do think it happens at some point before the deadline. So we'll have to have to see how that plays out. But uh, Kumar Rocker was not the only selection that the Mets took. There were, you know, Mets took 20 guys or 20 draft picks. So just go over some of your favorite draft picks throughout the Mets class here. Um, if you follow my Twitter feed, though, you know I'm a huge fan of Virginia's Mike Basswood. Right. I think he was, in my opinion, the steal of the draft, not counting the high school guys that went over slot. Just purely in terms of where he should have been and where he went, I think he's an absolute steal. You know, again, Kylie McDaniel of ESPN said he on his best day, he's second rounder. I've heard second round, third round talent. A lot of it is the value of the college pitcher. But I think he has he has starting pitcher, pitcher potential. You know, I think between him, Kumar Rocker, and Calvin Ziegler, the Mets selected three guys that I can confidently say are going to crack MLB rotation someday, barring injury or some crazy unforeseen whatever. Whether it's with the Mets, whether it's somewhere else, all three of them are going to crack rotation someday. I think Rocker is going to be an ace in the end. I think he has top-of-the-line potential. I think Ziegler, if he's developed well and stretched out enough, you know, he's already hitting – he's already pushing 100 with his fastball. You know, scouts aren't really sure what his breaking ball is. It's called, you know, some – Joe Jim Callis has it best that it's a a gyro breaking ball. You know, some days it's the curveball, some days it's the slider. No one's really sure what the grip is, you know? So I think if he can develop a third and potentially a fourth pitch again, he's only 18. He's got a lot of time. If he can develop those, those finish, finish off the first breaking ball, develop one or two more secondary pitches. I think he got a chance to be a middle rotation starter. You know, 
uh, Mark Jamuda made a great point to me that guys, after once you get past the talent aspect, you know, there is a lot to be said of pitching in major conferences on the collegiate level because it matures you very, very quickly. Right. And the ones that don't mature get left behind, you know. So you look at Mike Vassell pitching at one of the three best baseball programs in the country in Virginia. And he's facing big time programs every night. He's making those starts. And even just like not even not even looking at ERA, strikeout numbers, walk numbers and all that, being able to consistently do that night in and night out says a lot about the mental mindset. You know, I've heard that Vassal wanted to be with the Mets. You know, I've heard that that was a team he was really hoping to land with. A lot of that is because of, you know, the, the development of the Mets Pitching Academy down in Port St. Lucie. You know, that's led by Carter Caps and Reinhold. So they're very – pitchers are taking notice of what the Mets are doing. Pitchers, agents, scouts, whoever you want to dub, they're all taking notice of the pitching kind of renaissance almost that's taking place, whether it be in Queens or down at Port St. Lucie. So I think Vassal in the eighth round, paired with the fact that he, he wanted to get to the Mets, is a huge win for them. Um. The Mets internally really like JT Schwartz, who was their fourth round pick, uh, lefty hitting first baseman out of UCLA. You know, it's always kind of tough because first basemen generally tend not to move off the position. Mm. If anything, it's a fail-safe position for a corner infielder out there. Like you look at Pete Alonso, like he was, you know, he, he played some minor, he played some third base in the minors. You know, the only real fail-safe for a first baseman is catching. And even then, that's sometimes vice versa. You know, like Joe Maurer and Buster Posey at some point, before the Giants moved Posey back, he was playing first base. You know, Maurer was playing first base for the Twins back in his career. You know, so there really is no, aside from the DH, there really is no failsafe for a first base. Or you can be like Don Smith and just go in, into left field. Or Lucas <laughs> right. Duda. We've, I mean, right. we've seen it's, it's so many different people that in the past definitely. decade with the Mets alone. Yeah, I think that says more about the Mets than <laughs> players but even Dom Smith you know everyone talks about how much time he put into getting himself ready for that the weight he had to cut yeah because Dom was built like a first baseman when he got up Absolutely. he was a little bit surprised you know definitely did not have the leaner build that you want to see out of an outfielder but he had to cut himself to get to that size and that took a lot of dedication I think that's one of the few cases you see of someone being able to make that jump because he was he was young enough that he could still do it you know he was drafted out of high school he's probably top I don't even know how old he is right now he's probably 23 24 when he started making the jump Schwartz is a junior in high school right now or junior in college right now so he's got to be around 21 I think JT Schwartz is 21 so even then he's a little behind the ball in that move already he's a tall skinny guy you know but a good point Chimuta made to me so I asked him about Schwartz the good point he made to me is that you know the Mets generally internally tend to underestimate the power they get out of left-handed bats you know, they weren't too sold on Brandon Nimmo having legit power, and Brandon Nimmo's shown he has home run power. You know, the Mets mm. didn't think Conforto would be a 30-plus home run guy, and he's gotten close to or hit 30 at least four times. And you know, with the way he played last year, he probably would have hit 40 if the way he played in the short – he probably would have hit between 30 and 40 if the way he played in the shortened season was over an extended period of time. Right. You know, so the Mets tend to produce left-handed bats pretty well. I think that though that going with the fact that Schwartz is a high walk, high contact, low strikeout guy, 
could bode really well for all the parties involved. Um, I like Jack Thomas Wold out of UNLV. He slugged almost 800 this year from the left side. He's a massive power bat. You know, I believe he was a 12th or 13th round pick. So he's one of those guys that's going to fly under the radar. And he's a college bat, so he's not going to get too much attention. But I think anytime you have someone with that much raw power, yeah, you have to pay some sort of attention, even if it's just someone who's that, though, whose season stat line you check in on every now and then. You know, power is one of the few things that can't be taught. You know, that takes a lot of a lot of time and effort. So I think him having that alone gives him kind of a leg up. And even if it does come down to he strikes out too much, he doesn't make contact enough. That can be worked on. That's something that can be taught. Right. Power is a lot harder to teach. Because that count, because that includes the whole trimming down and then beefing up process. And you know, some guys just don't have the mental acuity to be able to do that. Some guys just can't get themselves to a point where they're willing to cut weight just to put it back on. Yeah. But put on in muscle. So I think he definitely has a leg up being a really strong kid. And you know, you have to start looking at it now with, you know, with the fact that so many pitchers are getting hurt swinging these days, whether it's DeGrom. Walker, there was someone the other night, another National League team, you know, you Darvish has said he's hurt himself on swings before. Mm-hmm. We're at a point now where DH in the NL is all but a sure thing starting yeah. next year. So you have to start looking at guys as like, where can you project them, including a DH? And I think when you have that much raw power, you definitely, you automatically fill that mold. You know, that's why I think in part the stock of a guy like Mark Vientos is rising is because even though he's positionless, you can look at these offensive numbers in more of a tunnel because you can say, all right, worst case, he doesn't pan out in the field. You can stick him at DH and slide him into the four or five spot in your lineup because you have that flexibility now you know, where you can look at that for a 162-game sprint where you can look at it and say, okay, this guy is not a – he's not a defensive anywhere, but you can slot him into your DH spot going forward. And I think a guy like Wolf might be able to fit that mold. I'm not saying he's not a good defensive outfielder. There's not, there's not a lot on the later college guys just because, you know, they weren't top guys coming out of high school and now they're going in the later rounds. They didn't get a lot of attention during the draft season. But I think the power mixed with the fact that he's a corner outfielder, so there's not much of a defensive emphasis there anyway, I think could do pretty well for him. Yeah, I, that, that's some really good insight there because when you hear about uh, a late round pick that slug 800, that's going to open your eyes. And you're hearing about a mid round pick that's throwing 100, that's going to open your eyes. So a lot of people, myself included, that don't really know as much about the draft prospects as we see uh, every day uh, in City Field or you know follow from the minor leagues may not know a, lo- a whole lot of information about those guys. So that's a lot of really good insight. I'm, I'm gonna, I know me personally, I'm gonna have to look more into the the Mets draft class just to learn more about them, but. Right, and even that, when you look that guy's slugging eight hundred, it's nuts. Yeah, even when you look at guys like back in the day, like people that knew the draft process and knew how it worked, you, like people knew Gavin Kachini was a major risk where he was. So people involved with the prospects at the draft side, not they weren't surprised he flopped, but it was always known it was a possibility. He was a glove run athleticism first guy. Who was, mm-hmm. If that develops, he's an everyday guy you slot in the two hole playing defense up the middle. The defense, the athleticism, the speed were there. They still are, you know, he's down playing for the angels in their, their triple A team now, like that's all still there, but the bat never developed, you know, yeah. the bat stalled out. You know, I, I'm, I think I might've been a pre-Syracuse days, not the pre-Syracuse, I might've been pre-Las Vegas. I don't even know where they were playing. I can't remember where they were playing triple A before that. Is that Buffalo? 
might have been. I I, honestly, I can't remember either. Yeah. It's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember where they were before Vegas. But his his bat just kind of flamed out in AAA. So, you know, a lot of people that were involved in that side of things, it's not fully surprising to see guys whose entire profile were based on a huge asterisk as well, if they hit, you know, and he never hit. So it wasn't totally surprising. Or even like you look at a guy like Kumar Rocker, where now the big asterisk is you saw his velocity dip in college. You knew he had a major workload after the COVID shortened season. And the asterisk on Rocker was if he's healthy, he's a top of the line guy. Now we're at a spot where the medicals are in question. You know, so it's not entirely surprising. You know, everyone in the college world knew he's hurt. Yeah. Knew there was something going on. You know, there's no point in speculating because you don't want to get yourself in trouble. But a major velocity dip after a massive shift in innings workload, there's a lot on the elbow. So it's not at all surprising that that elbow issue came up, you know? Yeah, so like like I said, very interesting stuff there on, in terms of the the Mets draft with Kumar Rocker, the information on his injury and the information and and insight on the other uh, maybe not so well known Mets uh, draft prospects. But now let's switch over to something that's very very prominent in terms of base right now, and that is the upcoming trade deadline coming up just around the corner, just a couple of days from now. A lot of rumors with the Mets. It seems like they're in on everyone, just like in free agency. So let's start off with the topic of Tyler Anderson reportedly being traded to Philly. Maybe, maybe not, because now there's reportedly a snag with one of the guys going back to Pittsburgh. So either way, it's going to affect the Mets. So let's just say either he gets traded to Philly or not. Will Tyler Anderson being traded or not in this scenario affect the Mets' approach to the trade deadline? Because I know they had interest in him. I say yes, because if he does not land with the Phillies, my gut tells me he's a Met. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the Phillies do not want him to pitch tonight. That's the Phillies. The Pirates do not want him to pitch tonight. Their goal is to have him dealt by the end of the deadline, according to what I've seen out there. I forget who it was a Pirates beat guy who said it. They don't want him pitching tonight. You know, uh, Jason Stark said they don't want him pitching tonight. The Pirates beat is saying they don't want him pitching tonight. Their goal is to have him treated by the Mets. Mm-hmm. So I think they will very quickly and with no issue pivot to the next best offer. And, you know, it's been well reported by originally by Martino and by others. And I can, not that my confirmation matters, but the Mets are interested in him in a, in a more serious way than they are just kind of doing due diligence. And it's someone that they want. And I think part of that is probably that for his forward thinking as the Mets are, Sandy's still old school. Rojas is still old school. They definitely want a lefty in that rotation. You know, Rich Hill helps. But we could be looking at a situation where, you know, Carlos Carrasco isn't 100% at first. Right. So they, so they piggyback Carrasco with Hill. And at which point, at, at that point, you still need another starter until the Grom is back. You know, so I think Anderson makes a lot of sense for them. Um, my gut tells me, and I think 99.9% of baseball people will agree with me, if you are throwing a bullpen right after a trade reportedly fell through, that trade is dead in the water. Yeah. There is no world, you know, Ben Sherrington's a smart dude. You know, the the Pirates, believe it or not, are now run by smart people. If there was any inkling that that trade was still alive, there was no chance of you throwing a bullpen. Because even just in a bullpen, you can have a freak accident where you pull something in your shoulder, you land wrong and you blow out your knee, whatever it may be. Like, it's, there's, there's a minimal, minimal, minimal chance of it happening, but you can't run even the most minimal of chances. You know, if you want to put pressure on the Phillies to make a deal, you send them out to the outfield to do some do some jogging, some stretching, you know, maybe some heavy ball work, 
but you don't have him throw a bullpen. You know, and he was reportedly throwing a bullpen before the Pirates game in just athletic shorts and a t-shirt. So you have to make the assumption that that trade's dead. You know, there's no point in taking that risk. So I think if that deal, I'm assuming it has, I think that that keeps the Mets on that radar just because the Mets so desperately need a starter. You know, you're still one injury away from, all right, we're back to three guys. You know, and you can't throw Carrasco straight back into the fire. He's only maxed out at three innings in Syracuse. You know, I think if he had a better second rehab start, he would have started one of the games in yesterday's doubleheader. You know, where they can feasibly say, all right, give me 60 pitches and you don't tax your bullpen. You know, so yeah. like they're, they're going to ask for a lot out of Jared Eichhoff tonight, purely just because their bullpen's taxed from a bullpen game. You know, like a, part, a part of the reason that the Mets bullpen started to slip was because they had countless bullpen games early in the year because either they couldn't get guys to New York or because guys kept on getting hurt, whatever it was. Yeah. So it's they still desperately need a guy, and I think Anderson makes the most sense for the Mets after the Phillies. Yeah, I mean, you look at what Rojas said, I think it was either yesterday or the day before, how uh, he was asked about the trade deadline. He thinks that everything that the Mets need, they already have there. Uh, well, I mean, the, the next enough. two games, we didn't know who started the games for him. And it's great that we're going to have DeGrom back at some point, hopefully in August, but you can't confirm. You got to August first. Yeah, you got to get no. there first, number one. And number two, we've seen as, as great as DeGrom is, he's proven that at times this year, he's had some injury issues. With Carrasco, he's had injury issues, and we don't know how much 100% he's going to be. He may now, like you said, he only topped out at three innings during his rehab starts. We still don't know what's going to happen with Noah Syndergaard. We can't keep on going with these uh, three games. And, and as, as great as Tyler McGill's been, we can't rely on, on him being that consistent, that tremendous each and every time out there. So we need other guys out there. So whether it be a, a Tyler Anderson, whether it be a John Gray, a Zach Davies, or someone of the, of the higher end, like a Barrios or Scherzer, uh, some, there needs to be another starting pitcher walking into the doors of, of City Field by, uh, by August 1st. It just, it, that needs to absolutely happen which goes right into our next thing of there's rumors. Like I said, rumors everywhere. They're attached to everyone. They're going to get Bryant story Baez, and everyone on the face of the planet. They're all going to be Mets. Well, so, I got, I got one for you. Tell me um, at the guys at Con Las Bases Llenas, which is, I believe Spanish for the loaded bases. Uh, Raul Ramos, who writes about the Mets and the Yankees for that, for that website. It's a very popular Spanish Mm-hmm. Uh, baseball website says the only way he would ever play second base was for his best friend Francisco Lindor's team. And who's who's that? Javier Baez. Oh, Baez. Oh, that's that's interesting. I mean, I, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of Javi Baez, but I wouldn't be completely opposed to it if it were to happen. And I think after the comments what uh, Zach Scott said about they're they're going to take into account how the player affects the locker room, and then you see how Baez reacted to his. Uh, walk-off hit yesterday i don't know how well he'll fit here personally but i mean listen buys is talented as hell right and i think there's two ways to look at that you know do you look at it as you know he's allowed and he might take some of the eyeballs off the point of what we're doing you know the goal is to win games and does bias antics sometimes take away from that but i think he's kind of i think he's in the same boat as stroman where no matter what he does his emotion is always going to rub people wrong yeah not 
and it's not a oh you don't like him you're racist oh if you don't like him you don't like whatever hmm. like i think it's more of a they're that energetic of a player and that just rubs people wrong the same way straight up energetic people mm-hmm. aren't athletes rub some people wrong yeah but i think you also look at this team and they're 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 dead men walking <laughs> i mean they are a boring baseball team you know I think a lot of that is that Lindor is not on, on the field anymore. Right. And, you know, you don't have the high energy of a Noah in the garden and whatnot, you know, and the Grom's not there. And that's not, it's not fun at right. the moment, but there's still, there's still a dead team walking. And I think a guy like Baez brings a lot of energy and it's oftentimes it gets, I think a little overlooked, but the dude knows how to play in October, he's done it at the highest level multiple times. And I think, you know, when you have a team where not a lot of them have, or if they have, they haven't done it in six years, you know, mm. Conforto hasn't hit the, Conforto, DeGrom, Syndergaard, Familia, they haven't hit the playoffs in six years, or, well, five years for, if you count the wild card game. Yeah, if you count, if you count for Familia, five years, you know, but you even have like, Nimmo's never done it. Dom, JD, Pete, They've never done it. McCann was a platoon guy when he did it. You know, I think a big emphasis for Scott and all of them at the deadline is going to be bringing in guys who can kind of hold the team together down the stretch. And I think Lindor is a big part of that. But at some point in August, you're going to lose him to a rehab assignment. Right. You know, I think a big reason that the Mets were able to stay, you know, on top of things early on is that they had guys in the clubhouse who knew how to win still, like Conforto, Nimmo, McNeil, they were still with the team. They've still been through winning seasons. They were there on the like the, the great ride in August of 2019. Like they like they they know how to hold a team together. I think that was a I think that was a really underrated aspect of you know the April and May Mets. But yeah, we're gonna get down the stretch where some guys have not had to play meaningful baseball games late in September. You know, even if Philly does have a great deadline, we could be at a point where the Mets and Phillies are three, four games out heading into a series in late September. And you need guys who know how to play those series. That's why I think that's what I love the most about the Rich Hill move. Aside from the fact that they just straight up need pitching. Yeah. Even if you're at a point where Rich Hill is in your bullpen, they're kind of like a sixth starter type, you know, kind of piggybacking Carrasco or whoever, you still, you know, even Carrasco too, like you're going to have guys who have been down that road before. I think the Mets pitching is a little more ready for that than their offense is, you know, because, you know, Strowman's, been deep in the playoffs multiple times just missed on two different world series i believe yeah you know he was on that late run with the last mets team you know may's been a high leverage guy for the twins in the playoffs you know um loop's done it before loop went to the world series last year you know familia's done it hasn't in a while but he's done it you know carrasco the grom is the grom and even if they do like say turn around and bring in on john gray you know, that Rockies team went to back-to-back playoffs when mm-hmm. they were at their best, you know, so they, he, he's been on, he's been in those situations before, and that's going to be really, really huge for the Mets. So aside from, you know, the obvious needs of, okay, you're still an injury away from Travis Blank and Horn getting yeah. legit. And don't get me wrong. I love Blank, and I'm, I'm huge on his bandwagon. I think he's going to be like a really good platoon guy or bench. But, that, but that's what he is. He's a platoon guy. Right. He's not an everyday player. Right. His his potential is a platoon guy. He's not even there yet. Yeah, you know, he's got option today, like he's just not one of those guys. Yet. You know, so you're an injury away from him getting legit reps. Mm. You know, like 
Jose Peraza is not coming back for a bit. They said still three to five more weeks for Lindor. So I think you're going to need guys who have been there before, you know, and I think that's a big thing, you know, for a lot of times it's more of an old school way of thinking. I think a lot of times that kind of gets lost in analytics and all that. But, you know, if you look at the 2015 and 2016 Mets, you can make a case the most important player, not Mangolina Cespedes on both of those teams was Kelly Johnson. Yeah. You know, Kelly had been there before. Kelly came in right as Terry was saying, if you don't hit, you don't play. Kelly tore it up for a little bit, lit a fire under Lucas Duda. Then Lucas Duda lost his mind down, down the stretch. You know, Kelly came in again in 2016 as, a, you know, the team was, I think, at one point, two games under in San Francisco, six or seven back in the wild card. And they went on a great run. Kelly Johnson was getting big hit after big hit, but was also a calming veteran presence. And I think a lot of times, you know, they're going to be in a dog hunt. You know, I think you just look at the way this division has gone and the way the baseball gods work. Yeah. They're gonna, you know, no one's going to pull, even if the Mets slip and Philly burst in the front over the next 20 games, no one's going to pull away. You know, and it'll probably be in the Mets. I still think the Mets go wire to wire and are in the are in first place here on out at the end of the year. I just don't see them falling out of first place now that most of their pieces are back and they're going to bring in pieces at the, at the deadline. My big worry was like late June, early July. Mm-hmm. They didn't fall out of first. I don't they're, – they're still going to make two, maybe three more moves. I don't see them falling out of first place anytime soon. Yeah, if they got past the like June swoon that they always do, and then this year's June swoon was a 500 record, I mean, I think you're, you're looking in pretty good shape if you're the Mets. Uh, you just right, and like even their worst case scenario is you still bring in one more starter, and if you miss on a Chris Bryant, maybe you pivot to Detroit and you get a Jonathan Jonathan Scope, who still has a good year. So at the minimum, you're still bringing in another starter who probably gets moved to the pen once Carrasco is back or once Degrom's back, and you still bring in another bat. So the worst case of the Mets is you're still adding two more pieces. You know, I expect them to make two or three moves. I wouldn't be shocked if they make a move by the end of the night. Right. I, especially if Eikhoff gets, you know, as Keith would say, his tits lit. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, if, I've, if Eikhoff gets knocked around. And gets my, DFA for a fourth God, time. My, my honest to God guess would be, and this is backed by a little bit of knowledge, that they would have a move done by the end of the night. You know, they know they can't keep running Eikhoff out there, but they also know that they can't overpay for a rental fifth start. You know, if Pittsburgh's like, we want to wait out the Anderson market until we get down closer to the deadline, give us Mark Vientos, you're not getting him. You still say no to that. You yeah. suck it up. You hope you can win a game 10 to, 10 to 8 or 11 to 10. You hope you can win a slugfest. But you can do that for one game. You know, I said the same thing before the Atlanta series. You cannot go into that series with three TBDs. Right. You know, and they went out and they, or not for, before the Blue Jays series. I said, you cannot go into this series and the Atlanta series, not only really having three starters. Mm-hmm. So they went out and they got Rich Hill. So now you're at four. And tonight is that fifth starter spot. You just don't know what you're going to do. You know, and I think hopefully tonight's the last night where they kind of have that, even with like Jordan Yamamoto starting to rehab some guys in AAA that are playing up a little bit. You know, hopefully tonight's the last night where we kind of sit there. Well, not tonight. There's, I think, one's tomorrow. But I think tomorrow's probably the – I think they trade for a starter for tomorrow's game, first off. And mm-hmm. second, I don't I, – I, I'm hopeful, and I have enough understanding to guess – you know, like, to – how do I want to put this without – there's – tonight will be the last night 
this series will be the last series where they kind of go into it with a TBD and hoping for a bullpen game. Yeah. So you're trying to say without really saying it, that something could very easily get done within the next say 24 hours. You're, you're expecting, you're expecting reinforcements. Yeah. I've heard from a couple of people that heads at the table, not granted, not saying it's the head of the table, not Steve himself. Mm-hmm. The people in positions of power are pissed. Okay. You know, I think as we all kind of are in a sense, you know, there's two ways to look at it. You can look at it from, Hey, we started Cameron Maven for a month and a half and we're still in first place. Mm-hmm. You look at, or you can look at it and you can say the Braves have Freddie Freeman in a, in a, Albies at this point, that's about it. The Phillies have the worst bullpen in baseball, and the Nationals were only held up by Kyle Schwarber going on a Bonds tear. And we're still only three and a half up. Like, what the F? Yeah. What's going on? You know, so there's different ways to look at it. But I think when you're on the Mets side, you definitely more so look at it from the second one. You know, the fans can look at it from, hey, we started Cameron Maven and we're still in first place. That's great. Because it has nothing to do with us. We're fans. But when you look at it from a business side, if you're trying to build a winner, and you have you've had your regulars out there for three to four weeks now, and you haven't started to pull away. That's an issue, right? You know, and for all we know, like the Mets might have been, the Mets might have tapped Andrew Chafin and say, "That's our guy." You know, if you put Loop and Chafin in the bullpen, that's the best lefty one-two punch in baseball. Yeah, that would be disgusting. That'd be the best, probably the best one-two punch for lefties. Cleveland had a killer one with Miller and Brian. Was it Shaw? No, Shaw's a righty. I forget who it was. They had a second killer lefty coming out of their bullpen. That'd probably be the best one-two punch since Prime Andrew Miller and whoever his whoever, whoever his Robin was. So there's there's definitely a reason for Mets brass to be pissed. But I also think you're in the first year of a fourteen billion dollar ownership, and you have said your goal is to have a title by the end of the next five years, and you have a fairly good chance of doing it this year because effectively you're going to get Mets Brewers in the wild card. I think the Mets can the Mets match up well with the Brewers. And I think you're also at a spot where, um, you know, one of giants Dodgers and Padres will be eliminated by the wild card round. The other will be knocked out by when they, when the division winner and the wild card winner play each other in the NLDS. So if you can get by the Brewers, you just have to hope you're the top of your rotation with the Grom, Walker, Stroman, Carrasco is good enough to get by one of those three West teams because they're all going to having to beat up on each other in the playoffs. Because the NL playoffs, if the Mets can start to make some distance, are effectively set. Right. Yeah. But you're going to have those five teams at the top. The Mets are going to get the Brewers in the first round. The three NL West teams are going to beat up on each other in a wild card round in the divisional series. And then you just have to hope you you get by Milwaukee, and you have to hope you're good enough. Your pitching's good enough. Good pitching can be good offense. You know, because even out West, you're still there's definitely some starting pitching. I think the Mets are going to make a move very soon because they know mm-hmm. they can't keep wasting these, not their gimme wins, but they could be. You know, the Braves aren't good. Right. <laughs> as simple as it can be, Atlanta's not good. And they're but not and without Jock Peterson today too. So it makes that, right. that so you, it's one less potent guy. You, you can't keep giving them gimme games or you can't take games that should be gimmies for you and making them ball games because you can't, because you don't have a starting pitcher. Yeah. You know, so I think regardless of Icoff's performance tonight, they bring in another starter by the deadline. I wouldn't be shocked if it's Tyler and John Gray's one they've publicly been on. Um, if they go for a splash, I think they can try and break the bank for Kyle Hendricks. I think the Mets have the prospect capital to do that. You know, it's weird because the Mets are almost set up to have to break the bank as opposed to trading middle tier guys because the Mets don't have middle tier guys. 
the Mets have three or four, and then it's a steep drop. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty top heavy farm system. Right. I think after, you know, not including the guys recently drafted because they can't be traded anyway. You know, I I'd call Vientos a mid tier prospect. He's not a top 100 guy, but he's a top 150. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't love the profile on date on JT Ginn purely because I don't love singer ballers who can't get it up there. You know, if you can't be sitting, granted, a lot of it's Tommy John rehab right now, but if you can't get back to touching 97 while sitting mid 90s, I don't like him as a prospect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Carlos Cortez is definitely playing above his value right now and he's kind of positionless going forward, but it's a big league bat. And I think, you know, he could be a poor man's Ben Zobrist in the sense that he can play second base, third base. You can probably pass him at first place, first base. He's been playing a lot of left field for Binghamton. You can stick him in right field too. You know, so I think there's definitely guys that are intriguing. You know, Junior Santos is in St. Lucie right now. He hit 97 the other day when he usually sits 90, 91, 92. So you have guys who have shown flashes of being a worthwhile prospect, but in the end, they're still mid-tier guys. But that's only three or four of those guys. You know, the Cubs might say, okay, we won't ask for Vientos or Brian if you can give us three mid-tier guys. They might want to go quantity over quality. Right. And then you have to look at it and say, okay, well, can we afford to spend all of our mid-tier guys on one guy when we still need a back-end starter and a reliever who are going to cost mid-tier guys? So then you might be in a spot where you have to you have to bite the bullet and trade like a legit prospect for three months of Tyler Anderson. Mm-hmm. You know, so the Mets are in a really weird spot where they're more positioned to go after the top of the market purely because of the way their farm system is set up than they are to go after the John Grays, you know, the Tyler Andersons, you know, the back end. Even like the, even the best relievers in the market aren't going to cost a lot just purely because relievers never do. Relievers are volatile. And it's, you know, they were, it's, I think the Chapin deal and the Peterson deal kind of show that it's going to be more of a buyer's market than people thought, you know, because I think a lot of teams have figured out in the past couple of weeks their course of action. You know, well, even if it's just st- staying pat, it's one less buyer off the market. You know, standing pat usually entails I'm willing to send to sell off a couple low, a couple end of the roster type guys. You know, so even if the Yankees do like look at, you know, and you know, whether it's Chad Green, they might look at him and say, okay, yeah, we can max him out now and just bring in another reliever with the Yankees. Right. But that's one more name on the market because they might not be buyers. So the price of everyone else drops down, you know, become 101 when there's more in the market, the price drops. Uh, even with the, the Tyler Anderson deal, he's had a, not, a solid year and he's he pretty well covered around baseball in terms of the, the, the buyers. He was going to be at, at tops, a 29 overall prospect in the Philly system. And a guy that's not even in their top 30. So it's not going to cost an arm and a leg to get some of the guys that we wanted. Uh, I mean, if you're going to go after the the Craig Kimbrels, that's going to cost you a lot. It's going to cost you a lot for Barrios. It's going to cost you a lot for Scherzer, even though he's a rental. It's the the prices that that these rental players are going to cost is not nearly what some people want to believe. Like people are going to try to think that if we want to get Chris Bryant, it's going to cost us uh, Ronnie Mauricio, or it's going to cost us some some one of one of the the, the big four or five. But in reality, that's that's not really the case because it's a rental. And in all likelihood, especially with them, with Bryant and Scherzer being Boris guys, they're not re-signing with the Mets. Yeah. I mean, Bryant, you might be able to make the case just because the Mets are going to, you know, you might look at Conforto and say, that's not our guy long-term. You, know, you might see some serious issues that persist from this year. You might have Bryant as your outfielder long-term. But even then, that's that's one of those, 
I think if Anderson and Phillies fall through, which right. the are they have, I think he makes a lot of sense for the Mets. You know, Dodgers are pitching poor. You know, the Padres are supposedly still looking for a starting for a starting pitcher. Giants are looking for a starting pitcher. Um, I wouldn't. I would never be shocked if the Brewers picking up a pitcher, just because of the type of a type of system that can pick up guys and turn them into something good. You know, and they always have crazy ideas. So, I think Anderson's a guy most every contender will be interested in mm-hmm. because he's a low cost guy you can slot in your five start. And at his worst days, you might give up five runs in five innings, but you're probably still in that game. Right. So, but I think the Mets will probably be the most aggressive on him just because they have a lot of reason to, and you're still at a point where the Mets can overpay a little bit because they have no one else to pitch. Yeah. Uh, so in that same breath, do you think, do you think the Mets should prioritize hitting or pitching when it comes to the deadline? There's a need for it both. Is- and I, I think, I think okay. one way or another of an arm and a bat still come to the Mets by the deadline. It's just a matter of who, which side is a bigger name coming from. I will say hitting because with hitting by default comes defense. Fair. You know? And I think, yeah, I, I put this on my Twitter feed last night. J.D. Davis's great plays are plays that probably have 75, you know, out expectancy rates. You know, like his play against the Blue Jays, I think it was a couple nights ago, it was against Gritchick, right? where he tagged the ball going to his left, spun, made the throw. That ball had an expected batting average of 130 on it. You know, so 87% of the time, that's an out. And J.D. Davis needed a miraculous play to, to get to it. I mean, this is the same guy who two years ago in his debut flubbed a couple double play balls and had a lollipop arm at first. You know, he, he double and triple clutches and takes a bunch of shuffle steps after every round ball. His defense you know, infuriates like, me. Because it's not good. No, it's, it's terrible. He's statistically the worst in baseball the last couple of years. I mean, like, I've heard that even at his best, some teams view him as, a, at, at best, a below average infielder. Right. You know, some teams view him as not a major league defender. You know, and even like his plays in the outfield weren't great. You know, he's a defensive anomaly in yeah. a sense. That he's bad everywhere, but he's it's not because he's a large guy with no range because he's in fit, he's in great shape, but just defensively he can't really do anything. Yeah, you know, so it's it's weird, and I think the Mets are at a spot now with their bench especially too because Carraz is out and Lindor's out, which will make your main to the everyday lineup and VR in the everyday lineup that they need to add to their bench, and they can do that by bringing in a third baseman mm-hmm. or a second baseman. You know, if you do go trade for Baez, in the short term, he's your shortstop, which puts one of VR and Giorme back on the bench. Mm-hmm. You know, when Lindor is back, you can shift him to second, shift McNeil to third. I know a lot of people don't love the idea because of the eye test a couple of years ago, but he's still defensively by the metrics, grades out as an okay defender at third, which is already a mile better than J.D. Davis. Right. And now you have Davis coming off your bench. You know, so I think the Mets need to make need to get better defensively because a lot of the a lot of the reasons they were great defensively early on were because of guys that aren't on the team anymore. You know, Cameron Maven plays a good left field. You know, Khalil Lee played a great right field. Right. Janesri Vargas is a solid defender in center. Yeah. You know, even like Peraza graded out as a great second baseman. But he's hurt. The three outfielders are all either in triple A, another team, triple yeah, Maven's still in Syracuse. So they got two of those guys in, in triple A and Fargus is with the Cubs now. So you have this tag on you that you're a great defensive team. But a lot of that was just from the replacement guys. You know, Lindor is still the best defensive shortstop in baseball, in my opinion. Right. But he's hurt right now. 
you know, and I think be able to put Guillaume back into a late inning defensive replacement role is a lot better for him than a starter, you know? So when you get better at one spot defensively, it helps you at all the rest, you know, it's like, it's like the senses, you know, like when one, sense, it's the opposite of your senses. When one senses go, the other gets stronger. It's the exact opposite for the Mets and the defense. You know, as long as Jamie Davis is at third, he's, def- he's a defensive liability. Yeah. You know, and I think whether you address that by bringing a second baseman or a shortstop and then shifting McNeil to third where he's at least respectable and solid, or you just go out and you get Chris Bryant and Josh Donaldson who are both at their worst decent defenders. Yeah, you know, everyone everyone makes that argument. It's like, oh, well, you know, J.D. Davis has he's a better offensive player than Chris Bryant. He's a better offensive player than Trevor Story uh, without cores, <laughs> and you still want to get those guys before him? Like, yeah, absolutely I would. I'd pack his bags for him. Well, I was looking into it. Um, a little bit yesterday, and JD's actually hitting a little below average against below, below his career average against lefties, mm-hmm. and he's demolishing righties right now. Granted, right. super small sample size, yeah, like but the book on not I think it's like sixty six, but the book on him through the minor leagues and through his first couple years with the Astros and then his first couple years with the Mets is that he cannot hit righties and he struggles with the fastball. Mm-hmm. So once that kind of regresses back to the mean of him struggling with righties. Those overall numbers of him hitting three whatever with an OPS in the one tens are gonna come down. And when those come down, do you want to be stuck with him as your only option at third base? You know, because there's no waiver deadline anymore. That's gone. If you don't bring in a guy by the 30th, he's not there. So do you want to take that risk and prioritize? Oh well, he can hit and he's got club control. Or do you want to go be a championship team? Like I put this out there a couple days ago, and I'll I'll save the you know the explicitives. But the Mets are in a spot where they can be super bold. You know, they're not in a spot where someone looks at them and go, they're one move away from a title. Like, at that point, you kind of have to do what you have to do to get yourself in a, in a championship, you know, in a seat where you can go win a championship. The Mets are in a spot right now where they have to. They can be bold, but they don't have to. But right. they sh- you know, no one's saying the Mets need to go get this guy. You know, because they're like, they're still not even 10 games over 500, and they play in the worst division in baseball. Like some people still don't think they're good. And I understand why, like they might just be the best of the bad team in the East. But, you know, if you do make that bold move and go get top shelf player A and B, you know, if you go get a Chris Bryant, and then you go bring in a Jose Barrios, even though I'm not his biggest fan, like that's two championship caliber type moves right. that live up to the expectations laid down in the offseason. They're in a spot where they can go do that because even if they do it and it flops, okay, the three be- three of the best records in baseball are coming out of the West right now. So yeah, that's bound to flop. But odds are the Mets don't make it. And even the Brewers are considerably better than the Mets. You know, odds are even if the Mets win the division, they're not making it out of the NLDS. And you know that's that's fine. And you know it is what it is. You know, first effectively, they're if you want to count 2019 as part of this core, it's their first year winning being a, like a legit contender year long with this core. So it's not there's championship expectations right away, but it's just another year off the core you're going to waste. Yeah. You know, th- what, what have the Yankees done with their core right now? Nothing. A couple ALDS exits and then an ALCS exit, and they haven't won a pennant. And now that core is starting to fall apart. Stanton's old. Judge is always hurt. Labor Torres isn't panning out. You know, Gardner's getting old. Cole is okay, but Severino's always hurt. Like Chapman stinks. It right at a point now where they did nothing with that court. And their best chance to win was probably 2017 and 2015, the year they got dumped by 
the Astros in the wild card game, and then the right. year the Astros dumped them in the ALCS. Those were the two best chances to win, in my opinion. And you can make a case those are their two of their first three years at that court. They did nothing with it. So you're never guaranteed, all right, well, you still have a couple more years of this group. But what if this couple more years goes the same way the first one did? You know, so the Mets are in a spot where even the AL West, like I said earlier, the NL West teams are all going to beat up on each other. Yeah. If you can get yourself to a point where you're as good, if not better than the Brewers, you have a fighting, a legit chance against whether it's the Dodgers, Giants, or Padres. And I think a huge way for them to do that is pitching and defense. You know, I think the Mets are a team built on pitching and defense as it is. But you have to stick to that calling card. You know, it's more so in football and basketball that defense wins championships. But if you can play, if you can put legit eight good defenders and nine, if you count like Stroman, DeGrom, Walker, whoever, on that field, you're going to be in most every game. Defense is is incredibly important. And you look at the most recent Mets, uh, you know, big run in 2015, they played okay defense and then in the world series they were an abomination defensively and they got they got torched they, they were in the lead in every single game i think the, the the number was they had the lead like 90 percent of the entire world series and they lost in five games yeah so it I just mean, goes to show how big defense is i was at game four when the ground ball went under murphy's glove oh my god you know everyone knew murphy was a bad defender and then it showed you know Obviously, they don't get to the World Series without Murphy, and I love him forever for that. Oh, yeah. But defense came back by them. Yeah, sure did. You no, know, even you look at the 2019 team, they lost some games because they just were not a good defensive team. You know, like the, even it, was, it wasn't 2019, but the image of Dom Smith and Ahmed Rosario running oh, in for a fly ball in left field against the Giants is burned in my brain. You know, this yeah. is just, you know, like even the 2015 team, that team went into the World Series with Wilmer Flores as their shortstop. Yeah, sure did. So I think the Mets have put themselves in a spot before where they've prioritized offense over defense. And it only gets you so far because then you get to a point where teams are playing good sides of both. The Dodgers yeah. hit well and the Dodgers play really good defense. Yeah. I mean, you look at, look at who they, the, the Mets have brought in. I'm sorry to cut you off. Look at the Mets who brought in. James McCann has improved every year defensively. Tomas Nito is very strong defensively. He's been here, but he's playing more now. Pete Alonso has improved incredibly defensively. Can I, can I cut you off? Yeah. We have a trait. We have a hug watch in DC. A hug watch in DC. And Trey Turner has left the game in Washington. No way. According to Jesse Doherty, he has left the game in Washington with no reason why as of yet. No freaking way. Meanwhile, Jared Eikhoff walks the first guy and drills the second guy. Yeah, the last I saw, base were loaded with nobody out. I don't, I don't even have it on. I don't. I refuse to watch. <laughs> I refuse to watch. Uh, VR got an out at home, so bases were still loaded with one out. But Trey Turner being traded changes the NL East drastically. He would be a great fit for the Mets. Rizzo won't trade him to the Mets. He's a guy where he'll, he'll put anywhere. Like I, I, I view two guys as untouchable, and that's Alvarez and Mauricio. I would include Alvarez. I would trade Mauricio for for Trey Turner. With the, just, with the contingency know, of an extension. If we extended Trey Turner, I would sell my soul. I would I would disagree on Mauricio being untouchable. I'm not his biggest fan, and there are some there are some issues with, you know, I think there's some bad reports on his defense in the sense that it hasn't 
progressed the way people had hoped and he's having a tough year. I have seen that, yeah. The last I heard, you know, he hasn't always been taking pregame BP in Brooklyn. And that can be one of two things. That can be Ronnie just not taking BP. You know, he's he's a good kid. No one says he's a bad kid, but yeah. There was a Sam Nats team he was on that was full of attitude issues and full of issues with the coaching staff and the players and all that. But so that could be that, or that could be the Mets just hiding a swing. He doesn't have a great swing. Mm. So it's, and he's hasn't really taken the jump a lot of people had hoped for this year. You know, internally, the Mets viewed that Beatty as a solid defender at third. You know, some, I forget who it was, someone had him ranked as a 55 glove at third base, which is above average. You know, 55 is a solid. Is a solid glove. I, I think I'd say the only three guys I currently view as untouchable are Alvarez, Baden, and I would throw Matt Allen in there just because if you trade him now, yep. his lowest value. Not that him as a prospect is untouchable, but at this moment in time, you don't sell low on the value of that type of guy. But so back to the back to the original point. Um, I think you have to trade for a bat in the sense that with a, a bat that brings good defense. You know, if you're going to trade for, you know, I, I would like I wouldn't have wanted them to trade for Nelson Cruz because where the where are you going to play him? Right, right. But if you bring in Chris Bryant, he plays decently at four or five major league positions. You know, Josh Donaldson still plays a respectable third base. You know, even like if you bring in a Baez, you know you're getting a great defender up great glove. So I think you have to look at it in the sense that you have to find the guy that is the improvement. You know, and some of these guys. I might take JD's bat over Baez's bat just because he's not does not have a great eye, you know. And that's that's fine. That's fine. It's not like you have to choose one or the other, but you have to look try and find a guy where the offense is still there, but the defense is a improvement. You know, hmm. it's hard to it's hard to take a step down defensively from JD Davis, but they need to be able to get better defensively at third base, and in turn up the middle because you might be able to if you go for a guy up the middle you shift McNeil to third. So you need to find a find that guy that allows you to either get better at just outright at third or shift McNeil to third. Yeah. And obviously you hope that doesn't come with a downgrade of the bat. You know, if they have to settle for Garrett Hampson from Colorado, I'm not I, or even Trevor Story. Like, I don't know if I'd bring in Story. You know, the Athletic had an article the other day on the fact that some scouts are really worried about his arm. You know, because he's been his, his arm has not been strong this year. At, that, at, at which point you turn and you say, well, if you think to yourself, okay, we'll just shift him to third when Lindor gets back. If he's got a bad arm, why are you putting him in third? Yeah. You know, so there's there's issues with stuff like that. You know, so you got to find the guy that fits that really awkward mold. But I think a Javi Baez does that. I think a Donaldson does that. I think a Chris Davis does that. I think if you bring on Donaldson, it kind of helps you bring on Barrios in the same way that taking on that full contract, might help drag down the price of Barrios a little bit. I think it definitely would. Yeah. So, so now let's let's fast forward. Let's look into our crystal ball here. It's after the deadline. It's Friday. The the Mets are wearing the black unis. They're looking fresh. Carlos Carrasco. Carlos Carrasco is taking the mound, not Rich Hill. Which I don't know why. I I, I just I prefer Carrasco taking the mound in the black over Rich Hill. It just makes me feel better inside. Um, so Carrasco's on the mound in the black jerseys. Are there any – who are the new Mets? I, I can't say who because there definitely will be, but who will be joining him on Friday? Okay, I think they're obviously going to bring in a bat and a pitcher. I think they also bring in a reliever. Because for as good as a guy like Yancy Diaz has been, you can't rely on him down the stretch. 
Don't get me wrong. I love them. I think they have a great, they have good value there, but you just can't rely on it down the stretch. I think, um, I think Daniel Hudson makes his way over. Okay. You know, I think there's going to be obvious issues with, with Rizzo dealing with the Mets, you know, because I think he wants to try and play games with a first year, first year manager or first year general manager. You know, he might just be trying to kind of prove to him, hey, I'm the big guy in this division, whatever. But I think Daniel Hudson, even if Rizzo wants to make it known, I'm not trading with the Mets. If the Mets put the best offer on the table for a reliever, you'd be stupid not to take it. So I think you see a case where Daniel Hudson makes his way over from D.C. I will say I think Chris Bryant is a Met. Okay. I think it's the most obvious fit. Um. You know, and as always, Philly is still a couple – Philly's in the same boat the Nationals were a couple weeks ago. There are, there are a few tough losses in the same day that the Mets win away from being five and a half, six out. You know, so – and I don't think there's anything they can do to totally fix that. You have to bring in an entirely new bullpen. But – so I don't really see them being super aggressive in that sense. I think they might go balls to the wall for Craig Kimbrell. And Graven would have made a lot of sense for them if people knew Seattle was selling it. Right. You know, I think they might go all in on trying to bring in three, maybe four really good relievers and just kind of solidify that bullpen. You know, because Alvarado is still good. You know, Nerys is still good. They just they're not back end. They're not they they can't be the back end of the bullpen. Right? They're both way too inconsistent. Right. But they're 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 probably the same level like a Miguel Castro. Castro yeah. might be a little better. But they're probably around the same level where they can be like the fourth or fifth best option out of your bullpen. Like mm-hmm. Castro Mets, when they're healthy and they're all pitching for their capabilities, you go Diaz, May, Lugo, Lou before you go to Castro. Right. So I think Philly might get super aggressive in that sense, but I think that might cost them with Bryant and that might cause them to miss out on Chris Bryant. Because even then, they still have solid bats. I don't really think offense is much of a worry. You know, they don't really have a center fielder. So maybe they go all in on like a Byron Buxton. Mm-hmm. But even then, he's always hurt. Yeah. So I think Chris Bryant's a Met. And I think when it comes down to it, the Mets choose John Gray over Anderson purely because Anderson, some of his spin rates and stuff have slipped a little bit since the sticky stuff, mm-hmm. you know, since that was all kind of they put the kibosh on that. Yeah. But John Gray's spin rates have remained in the top. Last I checked last week, he was 66th percentile for a baseball savant. So I think spin rate guys and pitch shape guys appeal to Ricky Meinhold, appeal appeal to Jeremy Hefner, you know, appear to appeal to the Mets pitching brass. So I think Gray makes a lot more of an organizational sense. He's a much better fit from the organizational sense for the Mets because they are more inclined to find guys with spin rates, with pitch movement, with with pitch shape. And that's what Stephen Tarpley was. Tarpley has absurd movement on his slider. He has great spin rates on it. But he can't throw a strike, so they cut him loose. Yeah. Letting yeah, the blowing corner out in AAA. But that's the, type, you know, that's the type of move the Mets are going to make for a while now is try and find the guy that other teams are sleeping on. They might be – the Mets might become what the – for pitchers, what the Dodgers are for position players. Or they might hone in on one craft and say, we're going to take this and exploit the hell out of this. You know, Max Muncie, not a great defender, but he's got absurd power. Yeah. A lot of teams kind of looked over that because they're like, oh, we can't really play defense. Strikeouts are kind of high. But the Dodgers are able to get him up to speed on the rest of it to the point where he's an all-star. Yeah. So the Mets might become that with pitching. What 
the Dodgers are with batting with hitting. You know, I think you know, like Rick Porcello would have probably actually be pretty decent behind this Mets defense. And that's my guy. I was talking about it with Rob Pearsall not too long ago because Rob's a big Porcello guy, and that Porcello would be pretty decent behind a good kind of good defense. A ground ball pitcher would be okay. Like even like Strowman pitched to an ERA in the fours with the 2019 Mets. Yeah, like the the defense last year was just so disgustingly bad. He was crippled. Right, exactly. And when you're a ground ball pitcher, you're automatically a million steps behind. Mm -hmm. But I would say the Mets need defense first and foremost. And if that comes in the sense of buying good defenders and sticking them on the bench, you still got to do it, you know, because Kevin Pillar is not a great defender anymore. Right. Even with the the defensive uh, steps that the Mets brass has taken, it's still not good. So I think in the end, they look at a guy like Brian, who's a lot of defensive versatility and is a solid defender most everywhere. Yeah. That, that appeals to them, you know, whether they go to Colorado and try and pry Gary Hampson away, he's a great defender in center and has some great speed. That makes more sense for the Mets than Kevin Pillard is. So I think, I think they can go a lot of different ways. You can still convince me they make the splash with Minnesota and they go for Berrios and Donaldson. You can convince me they make the splash with Chicago and go for Bryant and Kimbrell in the same deal. But I don't think they go as reliever heavy as people think just because Edwin Diaz has shown his stints of seven or eight straight outings where no one touches him. Yeah, I think these past couple have been Remain, Remain's been, been great for him. Yeah. You know, Castro was great early on. Lugo is still Lugo. Even Familia has shown that when his defense makes plays behind him, he can be one of the guys you rely on. Loop's been phenomenal. I think they might try and go after someone more in the second tier of relievers just because the price for Kimbrell is going to be huge yeah. compared to what you expect for a rental reliever. You know, I think maybe even they don't go reliever and they try and find a starter who they can feasibly convert into a reliever. I don't know what he's up to these days, but Colin McHugh fits that fits that mold to a T. I don't know what, ha- but I just saw that yesterday he was put on the, uh, in- he's on the injured list as of yesterday. I don't know what happened to him, but he's hurt. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's in, he's in Tampa. Anyway. But, oh, arm fatigue. But I think they might look for a starter who they can start until the Grom is back because because you might have, a, might have to piggyback Carrasco for a little bit. But I think they're going to look for an, a starter they can then transition to the bullpen or whether they, they might think Rich Hill's that guy. You know, I think you at least, needed a starter you can then transition to the bullpen so in that way strengthen your bullpen while also being able to work on the rotation a guy like the McHugh mold mm-hmm. maybe not specifically because he's in Tampa he's on a winner and he's hurt the McHugh mold makes a lot of sense for him yeah you know he can start until mid-August when at that point your rotation is DeGrom, Carrasco, Stroman, Walker, McGill, Hill, whoever you know, even a healthy like when Degrom's back, you might you might just be shifting Tyler McGill to the bullpen, right? Because you might not want him exposed down the stretch. You know, you might say, "Hey, you have pitch count issues, but your fastball curveball combo plays absurd out of the bullpen." Yeah. You know, some within the Mets that think, aside from JT Ginn's changeup, McGill's curveball might have been the best pitch in the system coming into the year. Hmm. There's high, pretty guys that are pretty high up on the Mets PD and the Mets scouting staffs that think that McGill's pitch, McGill's curveball was MLB ready when he got there in double A. And they were right. It is an MLB ready pitch. So you might look at that and say, that's going to play great out of the bullpen. And you slot him into the pen. And now your back end looks Diaz, May, Loop, 
Familia, Castro, Lugo, McGill. Yeah. And you you got and by then maybe you Oswald Gesellman or Foley back, and that's that's your eight. That's your eight guy ten. So I think starting pitching being healthy will obviously help them a lot. But I don't think they need to go in as big on a reliever as everyone thinks. Just and I think a lot of that is reactionary because of the yeah, struggle. You know, you're, yeah. you're gonna have some struggles in the in the years, you know. Especially if you're a Mets closer. Like Familia's 2016 run up until the wild card was probably the most dominant run you've ever seen from a Mets closer. And we probably will ever see for a while. Unless they go smolt like reverse smolt and throw the Grom in the closer or a senator physically. Who the hell knows? But you know, every closer is gonna have their struggles. You know, even Andrew Chapin came in, I think he struggled a little bit lately too. Like Kyle Gibson. He's not a closer, but he's got he's got roughed up over his last three or four starts after being the considered runaway Cy Young in the AL. Right. You know, even even the ground had a tough couple starts by his standards. But like, you're gonna have instances and stretches of being roughed up. And what separates the smart front offices from the dumb ones is the ones that make reactionary trades tend to lose. You know, it's one thing to be reactionary in the sense of holy crap. Jacob DeGrom just blew out his UCL. Go sell the house for Jose Barrios. Like, okay, that makes sense. Right. But if it's, man, Edwin Diaz has blown three straight saves, and some of them he got bad with the death. Some of them he had tough control. Some of them his defense didn't help. Oh, no. Like, you don't make a reactionary trade for that. Like, I think the smartest thing Zach Scott and Sandy Alderson did earlier in the year was not freaking out when everyone got hurt. You know, the guys that they brought in to hold down the fort in the meantime, some of them did, some of them didn't. You know, but even like Billy McKinney did his purpose and went his way. Jose Peraza did his purpose and then slotted into an even better role for him. Mm -hmm. You know, so the smart, the best thing that the front office has done so far this year is not fall into the trap of of a reactionary trade. Yeah, there there have been numerous chances for them to be reactionary and make a make a an over an overbuying. You know, sell way too much to get a piece just because so and so got hurt or these pieces got hurt there have been more injuries on this team than I've, I have I can ever remember. They've used 55 different pictures or 55 different players already. And the, the franchise record is 56 and that's going to get shattered by this weekend when you get Carrasco back and, and whoever the Mets trade for. So they've had their chances to be overreactionary and they've done a tremendous job of, of knowing when to push a button in terms of calling someone up or just making a minor trade like a Billy McKinney. They, they called up a Mason Williams who did his job for when, when he was here, he wasn't tremendous by any stretch of the imagination, but he did his job and helped help the team kind of stay above water. And they've been in first place for, I think today makes 78, 79 days. It's been nothing short of incredible. Right. And I think reactionary trades help no one, you know, even if you just kind of like freak out and panic and bring a guy in, they might not be a good fit for that clubhouse. So that kind of creates some issues too. But I think in the end, Bryant makes the most sense in the world. I think, you know, I think they might look at a package of John Gray and Michael Givens from Colorado. Givens has been pretty solid this year. He's a low, he's a low risk, high reward type reliever. Where at his best, you can kind of slot him into May and Lugo and Castro. Mm-hmm. He's more of like the familia Drew Smith side of the Mets bullpen. You know, so I think he can make a lot of sense. And I think the Mets might get themselves to a point where they just try and deal with one one team, one GM, and just go from there. Because there yeah. are a lot of the more attractive names are kind of clumped together right now, just purely because, you know, 
you you look at it and you can say the Mets need a bat and a reliever. Man, they could just talk to Jed Hoyer and Jed Hoyer only. If you need a starter and a bat, you could talk to Jed Hoyer and Jed Hoyer only. Yeah. <laughs> you, could go, you could go Davies and Bryant. You could go Barrios and Donaldson. If you decide you, you only want a reliever and a bat, you could go Kimbrell and Bryant. You could go Givens and Story. You could go Gray and Story. You know, a lot of the better players in the market, a lot of them are on the same team just because not everyone's convinced they're selling. Yeah, that's why for me, Pittsburgh was an attractive place to try to make a trade, especially when, when we were playing Pittsburgh. Yeah, I, I would have loved to get either Anderson and Fraser or a Fraser and a Richard Rodriguez, something. Uh, right. some, that's say, no, we don't need a bat. Our right. offense is fine. We need a starter or a leader. They could go Anderson and Richard Rodriguez. It's, exactly. It's, you know, whether it's fortunate or unfortunate, kind of really relies on your your front office and how well they get along with other teams. But Sandy Arlson's a future Hall of Fame executive if he gets one more ring, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. If, he gets one more ring to go on top of the 89 A's. I think it was 89, but he will, he'll be in Cooperstown. You know, he got really close to one in 2015. He's working mm. in the office. So he's really well-respected and admired around baseball on top of someone that comes off the Epstein tree that really no one has anything bad to say about Zach Scott. You know, the Mets are an easy front office to deal with. You know, where you turn around and you look at the nationals or Mike Rizzo's outwardly saying, I don't care what the trade offer is. I'm not dealing sure with the Mets. So, I think some front offices are easier to work with than others, and that really benefits you this time of year. Yeah. So I think the Mets are pretty easy to work with, and that might be more attractive to a team like the Rockies, who are like, I just need to get these rentals out of here. These guys are going to give me the least amount of bullshit. I can hop on the horn, get it, get it in, get it out, and deal's done. You know? Yeah. I, and just going back to going back to the who we think I, I think. Chris Bryant, and like you said, it makes the most sense. I just think going back to the spring training, there's too much smoke for there not to be fire in terms of Chris Bryant to the Mets. I, I think it's just the inevitable has been delayed for far too long. I just I don't see a scenario where he doesn't end up a Met. John Gray, I think at this point, I think at this point, I would love Barrios to be here, but I think the price is going to be insane. Yeah, I think starting price on that is a Ronnie Mauricio, who, again, I'm not the biggest fan of. But you don't just give away a top 100 prospect, even if you don't like love the profile or not. If, even if you even if you decide we need to move on from Ronnie, you still max out his value. You don't mm-hmm. just give away. So, and I the, the analytics don't love Barrios as a top in the rotation guy. You know, his expected ERA and his FIP for his career kind of sit around the four mark. You know, which probably slots into more of the Taiwan Walker conversation. Mm-hmm. So, and nothing, not a knock on Rocker, um, Walker, but Walker's not an ace. Right. You no, know, Walker's your number three on a playoff team, number three or a four. And I think that's what Barrios is. He might be a number three or four on a playoff team. Like Carrasco is, when healthy, Carrasco is a clear cut number two on this team. 100%. So, and I think the Mets know that Stroman and, Wa- Stroman and Walker are threes, are a three and a four that are pitching, that were pitching up to a two and a three level. So you turn around and look at the game. Yeah, sure did. I see Albies trotting around second base. That's not good. Yeah. But um, I think that – where was I going with that? Oh, yeah, you still don't give away your top prospects even if you deem them not to be an organizational fit. Ronnie's a big swing and miss guy, and the Mets under Alderson are notoriously take your walk, next guy up. Yeah. So – and that doesn't entirely fit well. That's why they, part of the reason they love Alvarez is Alvarez is a huge bat, obviously, but Alvarez is more than fine taking walks. Brett Baby's got a good eye. You know, so there's not a lot of knocks on them in that sense. Ronnie's a huge swing in this guy, and his eye has not improved at all year over year. 
you know, you know, they like Vientos because a big reason when Vientos is hot, he's controlling the strike zone, limiting the walks, limiting the strikeouts and the walks are up. That's what he's doing right now. He's walk, hmm. strikeout walk numbers on his hot tear. He's on, he went yard against tonight for his 18. Yep. When he's on these tears, his walk number and his strikeout numbers are pretty identical. They're both sitting between 15 and 20%, which is about all you can really ask for out of a kid. So I think the Mets are kind of at a point now where, yes, they might want to move on from Ronnie, and, but you still max out his value, and I don't think Darius is that guy. And as for Bryant, talks in the winter were much further along than people would like to think. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of – I think, you know – the Ricketts are cash. They're crying cash poor. And I think they were willing to try and move the money off the table. But my guess, an educated guess, is that Hoyer convinced the Ricketts, look, I can buy cheap on some guys and we can get a play- we can get a team that'll push the playoffs in September. And it was working for a while. Right, they they were in contention. And then they pump, lost, what was it, 10 straight? No- Right. There's no better, there's no more of an attached fan base or a team than the Cubs, than Cubs fans. I don't think. Right. No one loves your team more than Cubs fans. So if you're playing winning baseball, you're going to pack that stadium. You're going to sell jerseys. You're going to sell seats. And it was working for a while. It's just, you know, the, not the inevitable, but it fell apart. And, yeah. you know, I think that's a good thing about that. That's, I'm sure, you the fail safe plan is if they fall apart before the deadline, I can trade players A, B, C, and D. Mm-hmm. And we'll get a good return. Your money will be off the books. All the prospects in my system will all be good. We gave it a run, but it didn't work. You know, and for the first couple months of the year, they were selling out Wrigley Field. They were playing really good baseball. The buzz around them was look at the Cubs. You know, they traded Darvish, but they're still really good. But I just think people, not a lot of people realize that those talks were further down the line than you'd like to think. I yeah. think they were probably another one or two phone calls away from Chris Bryant getting that. Yeah. No, I, I, I had the I had the thought that they were really close. Like obviously I don't really have a whole lot of inside information, like, but yeah. For as much as people might not like Andy Martino, you know, I'm blocked by him on Twitter. I get it. But he 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 got some good knowledge. And if he's saying that there was a point at where Bryant could be traded as soon as the weekend, I take him at his at his value for that. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was in January. So I think they were, that they were very, very close to Bryant being shipped off to the Nets. And I think you also have to look at, from the connection standpoint, Jed Hoyer and Zach Scott go way back. They're both off the Epstein tree. They go way back. There's an easy relationship there. You know, that's kind of, you know, even like you look at the, like when the Mets sold off, you know, I think it was Vargas or Ramos to the Phillies and they got Austin Bosart for it. Bosart was a friend of the Wilpons. Yep. Like Went to connect- school with their kid. Right, connections go as much as stupid as it is. It's just a point that connections go a long way in baseball. You know, like even in like basketball, every time a clutch a clutch agency player is put on the market, he gets treated to the Lakers. Like <laughs> it's it just it happens. And you know what? The Mets brought in a bunch of CAA guys while Brody was here. So like you just kind of have to look at it from that way in the sense that there is a previous connection there, and they know how each other think. Yeah. You know, Scott might be able to hypothetically hypothetically say. Hoyer really trusts his PD's ability, his PD department's ability to develop defenders, but he doesn't really love how he doesn't totally trust him to develop bats. So he likes bat first prospects. So he's gonna like a Mark Vientos. I'll do Vientos and a, an interesting arm for Kimbrel and Grunt. Like he could literally just call him up and say, "Hey, I know you. I know you're gonna like prospects A, B, and C. Here's my offer." Yeah. Whereas you might have to look at Colorado, where there's an interim GM right now. Mm-hmm. 
until after what's his face stepped down and blanking on his name. But no one, it's not, he might not be as easy to work with because no one's, you know, I don't know what his connections and what tree he came off of, but that's, that's a notoriously weird organization to work with. You know, so I think the, I think people are kind of, it's not a huge difference, but it's a difference is in the connection between uh, Scott and Hoyer. And yeah. even Pittsburgh, Charrington came, Charrington came off the Epstein tree as well. Yep, sure did. So I think that's just something you're, I don't you know, a lot of people want to say Sandy's still calling the shots. I don't think he is at this point. I think Scott and his smaller moves has earned enough trust, you know, in his bringing in Billy McKinney and moves like that. He's earned enough trust that I think he, I personally think he's probably running point on trade talks. I don't think he's making all the calls himself. I think he still has to run yeah. his through Sandy and then Sandy either runs him through Steve or Sandy signs off on himself. But Sandy was not involved in the draft. You know, to get the okay on drafting Kumar Rockers, Zach Scott was the okay. Hmm. So, you know, and you, 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 every team needs a GM's okay on, you know, Thanos and Tremuto run the draft, but you always need the GM's thumbs up on drafting a first round player just because of the financial commitment. Yeah. But Zach Scott was, was the guy they had to check in with. You know, Sandy was not involved in the draft. You know, I'm sure he gave his insight and when called upon, he helped. But, you know, Zach Scott was in the war room on draft day. Sandy Austin was not. So I think Scott's at a point with the, with the organization now where I think, I think the interim tag is going off in the winter. And I think he's the guy running point on these trade talks. Oh, yeah. I think they absolutely need to take the interim tag off. I think he's done a, a tremendous job in, in terms of the moves that, he, that he's, he's made prior to the deadline and the, the moves that I'm sure he's going to be making in these next couple of days. I think he's done a tremendous job. He made the Rich Hill move in utter silence. That came out of nowhere. So I think he's – the entire front office has done a really good job. Uh, but now let's uh, – especially because we're, we're running out of time here a little bit, let's run into a little bit of a rapid fire, talk about the big stars on the market. If they're going to get traded, where will they get traded? Let's start with the guy that we have both agree will be a Met. So Chris Bryant, he will be a Met. How about Craig Kimbrell? Will he get traded? And if he does, where is he going? Uh, Philadelphia. You think he's going to Philly? I think that's a very Dombrowski move. Dombrowski's had him before. Dombrowski will do it again. Yeah, I think if he gets dealt, Philly is the most obvious like uh, landing spot. I don't think he gets traded purely because of the demand that, that the return it's going to take to get him. How about Trevor Story? Where does he land up? New York with the Yankees. You think goes to the – I think – I don't know why. For me, I think he goes to the White Sox. That's just – don't know why. That's what where my gut says. Uh, Jose Barrios, where does he go if he gets traded? Nowhere. Yep, agree on that one. Uh, Joey Gallo. Um, I think if he gets moved and moved, and I'm not sold that he is, he makes some sense for Atlanta. For Atlanta, I think he makes some sense for Atlanta purely in the sense that Christian Pache is not developed how they hoped he would in center. Mm. You can look at it and say, screw defense, we want to score runs, and you can stick Acuna in center when he recovers and put Gallo in right. And even in the short term this year, put Peterson in center. I haven't paid enough attention to them since the break to know where they're playing Peterson. I don't even know where he's playing tonight because I'm not watching the game. <laughs> well, he's out tonight. Probably but I think <laughs> you could feasibly put Peterson in center, you know, um, or Peterson in left, Guillermo Heredia in center, and Gallo in right. I think you can make a lot of sense in Atlanta. I didn't even think about that. I 
hope to God that doesn't happen. Um, I don't think he gets traded either. I think he's a guy that Texas tries to build around instead of sell off. Uh, last few guys here, Max Scherzer, does he get traded? Red Sox. Red Sox. That they need an ace. They need an ace badly. They got a couple. Something. I think with Sale, and I think if if Sale, he's on his rehab right now. I think it's winding down. Yep. Sale and Scherzer and Evaldi at the top of your rotation gets you to the World Series. It definitely could. The Nationals should trade Scherzer by all costs because they are a god awful team. They have a god awful farm system. They need. They should trade him. I just don't know if they do. Well, because you always look at it in the sense that you can slap the qualifying offer on him and just take the draft. Yeah, you can very and easily I, do that. That's me. That's going to be why the Rockies might not trade Story, is because you feasibly might think that your the prospect you get in the 30s and 40s might be better than whoever you get in a trade. You know, maybe. maybe. All right. Uh, last couple here. Trey Turner. He was pulled from today's game, but it was due to an injury. There's no hug wash going on there yet. Will there be a hug watch for Trey Turner? Yeah, I think he has out to Chavez Ravine. I think, I think an ideal matchup there would be Turner heading out and Gavin Lux coming the other way. Yeah. Lux is a solid reclamation project for the Nationals. So I think clean house this winter. They really should. Aside from Rizzo. And even then, I might clean house with Rizzo because he kind of stumbled in and lucked his way into a, to a ring. Because yep. the Nationals got hot at the right time. Like Howie Kendrick and Starling Castro should not be winning you rings, but they did, you know. And so I think, I think Lux is a solid reclamation project just because, you know, we, people know what he is as a prospect. He just hasn't gotten it to work in the big jet. And a lot of that's been like shaky playing time because it's tough coming up as a top prospect and being, putting it, being put into a part time role on a championship team. So I think a deal centered around Turner and Lux makes a lot of sense for both sides. That does make a lot. You kind of talked me into that one. I may have to go there too. I, I think he the I Dodgers think another, will be something. Another team, another team to keep an eye on would be the Angels. Because mm-hmm. I just think the Angels are at a point where they might do what the Mets have done a couple of times. A sense of let's buy some pieces of the club control. That's why I think I didn't mention this, but I think Barrios and the Angels match up pretty well. Because they I don't know if they have the prospect capital to do it, but I think the Angels might look at it and go, we can buy pieces with club control. And if we go on a run this year, we go on a run. If we don't, we still have them for next year. So kind of like what the Mets did with A.J. Ramos a couple of years ago, Stroman in 2019, where they kind of look at it. And they did go on that run, but they knew they had Stroman coming back for next year anyway. So worst case, you bought yourself a starter for 2020. Yeah. Or for in this case, for the Angels, it would be a shortstop for 2022. Or yeah. center, second base, second base, center field, wherever you decide to play. Where, yeah, he's he could play. He could. He's so athletic. You put put him almost anywhere. And then final one. Actually, we'll throw we'll throw in two more. Uh, we'll just roll it out here. John Gray, Tyler Anderson. Where do they end up? I still think Anderson ends up in the Phillies. With I think he ends up still ends up in Philadelphia. Just makes too much sense. I mean, just in the fact there's already framework there. Um, and not that they can easily replace a mid-tier prospect, but the Phillies have a good enough system that can. Um, I don't know how well a flyball pitcher in Citizens Bank ballpark is going to work out, but I am not complaining. It won't. I'm not complaining as a Mets fan. Um, and I think Gray ends up in Queens. I think that's a solid matchup. I think that's a type of guy the Mets really like. I'll even throw in one more for you. I okay. think I think Kyle Gibson ends up with the Padres. 
I like that a lot. I kind of forgot about Kyle Gibson. Uh, he was a guy that I actually kind of looked at the at the Mets trying to get, but he he has fallen off a little bit. You said where the the Padres? Yeah, that could work. That could work because they need to do something. The the Dodgers, their pitching has been all over the place. They have David Price starting now, and that can only work for so long. Uh, they don't have Kershaw. Who knows if Bauer is ever going to throw a pitch ever again? So there's a if lot of question marks there. Rodriguez, and then it kind of not that it dips off, but you have question marks. Yep. You know, that's why I think they're going to be heavy and unsure here. It'll be probably they're, they're looking at Anderson. They're looking at Gray. They'll probably look at Wade Miley, who I mm-hmm. think would be you know, for the Mets. You know, I've, I've even heard that the Mets, if, you know, the Reds are open to moving Miley, I've heard that that's a guy the Mets could be in on. You know, so I think the Dodgers, the Padres, and the Giants are all going to be on every in on every picture on the market. Mm-hmm. It comes down to which one gets served. You know, which one can bring in the top line guy. You know, even if that is a Gibson, a Barrios, a Scherzer, the other guys we named, you know, I just think it, it all comes down to that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the Mets get one of the two. I think, like you said, since there's already some sort of framework with Philly, Tyler Anderson is, if I, if I had to take a guess, he's probably still going to end up Philly. Maybe the Giants try to swoop in and make an offer for him because they, they need some, I, I just don't think they have enough to, to, I don't know how they've done it for this long. Um, so maybe they try to go out and get a, a Tyler Anderson. I think at this point I've convinced myself that John Gray's coming to Queens. Uh, I've, I've wanted Burrios the entire time, but I think the price is going to be too steep if Minnesota tries to sell him off. Uh, so I think, I think it's the Mets end up with Bryant, John Gray, some reliever. I don't know who I did not think Daniel Hudson was an option, but you kind of opened me up to that one idea. The one might be if the Indians kind of go the Mariners route and just selling rental pieces but keeping the core together. I think Brian Shaw could be interesting. Shaw's having a good year. He's, yeah, I mean, I think they could use a lefty, which is why I'm not not that I'm not huge on Kimbrel, but I would have rather if you gave me the choice between Kimbrel and Chafin, I would have taken Chafin, just because even when you get to the playoffs, you know you're gonna have not that you're gonna covet being able to have two tough lefties against lefties. But not every Mets, you know, I don't think every Mets reliever is suited for late inning situations against left-handed pitchers, against left-handed hitters. Yeah. So I think they could really benefit from another lefty in their bullpen. You know, you can never have too many good lefties. You know, and Loop's great, but Loop might just be straight up your, you know, I don't know how they're going to go into the playoffs setting it up, but Loop might just straight up be your eighth inning guy. Loop might be your setup guy to DS. I think at that point that handicaps you. Because I have to, I have to try and find hope that you know reverse splits can hold up for a reliever. Mm-hmm. So I think they can really use another solid lefty. Um, I would keep an eye on Chase and Street. You know, might they might try and bring him back to town. He's been great for Pittsburgh. He didn't make a lot of sense to let them leave to let leave anyway. Mm. But they basically chose Jacob Barnes over him. You know, the way I look at it, and one guy that was always a DFA candidate coming into camp, but they chose Barnes. They chose the right chose righty over the lefty. Mm. But Shreve's having a pretty good year for Pittsburgh. I don't think he pitched against the Mets. This is a solid year. He's in a, he's in a one game, year. but I forget. I think he might have gotten an out or two and then in the beginning. But he's in a walk year. He's having a good year. He's a solid lefty. He doesn't throw terribly hard, but he's effective in a, being a low ball pitcher. And I think he makes a lot of sense for the Mets in the sense that he's a second-tier lefty that they could really use on the bullpen. And he's going to cost probably a player to be named later. Yeah, low, he's going to cost low peanuts. Low, right? Right, right, because the rest of the market's gonna be focused on top end relievers, so like maybe a Shaw, like what would have been a Chapin, like a Kimbrel, you know, whoever ends up being put out there. Yeah, you know, like, like a Yimmy Garcia in Miami. 
that, that could even be a name for the Mets. That could be a name. Yeah. You know, Gimme's been a really effective starter. God, who's closing games for the Orioles? The kid, the dude who was throwing in the low 60s. Um, Cesar Valdez, I think was his name. Yeah, he's a lefty, right? I think so. I couldn't even tell you. Wrong. But I, th- I think the Mets prioritize. They have Paul Fry, who is a lefty. They have Tanner right. Scott, who's a lefty. I think Valdez might be a righty. Right. But I think the Mets are going to look for a lefty first and foremost coming out yep. of the pen. They know this, that even when you get down the stretch, you're going to have to have those matches where you almost go old school lefty lefty. You know, like even if like you're going to have the cases where you know, it's Harper, you need to get Harper out, you need to get um, you need to get Freeman out. You want to turn always around, you know, even like to a, a, like a, like a lower extent, you know, the Marlins have some tough lefties. So even though not as much now that Dickerson's gone, but still you're going to get to points where you need to get a lefty out and Aaron Loop can't be the only lefty you go to. Yeah. And nope. then in the, in the postseason, you're going to have to get Yelich out. You're going to have to get Bellinger out. You're going to have to get Muncie out. You're going to, if they don't right. trade Gavin Lux, you're going to have to get Gavin Lux out. There's a right. lot of lefties and out West. For, for as much as you want to talk about, you know, like not you simply, but people in general want to talk about, oh, well, like some righty relievers have, have reverse splits. Some lefty bats just can't deal with the pitch coming from hand side. Mm-hmm. Some lefty bats just can't make that adjustment. So for as much as a, for as much as you might think a righty can still get them out, a lefty might, it might be more so that some lefty bats just can't hit left-handed pitching as opposed to your relievers who can get both hands out. So you have to look at it from both ways. You know, where you know that some lefties are just straight up struggle against left-handed pitching, but also be able to find the lefties that can effectively pitch the left-handed pitching. You know, Sean Gilmartin was not great against lefties, if I remember correctly. He struggled a little bit more with righties. He was a little bit better with righties than he was lefties, but he was still good to use in spots where lefty hitters, you know, lefty batters that couldn't handle left-handed pitching. Like, you know, like Dan Ugla at that point in his career could not handle left-handed pitching. So I think that's definitely somewhere that the Mets in the book because they know that they're going to need at least one more. You know, and maybe they think, you know, at that point in the season, Rich Hill could be in our bullpen. You know, because they're not just going to it's, – it's an interesting dynamic because if, if they trade to another starter, they're not just going to cut whatever guy you trade. Right. So one of them will probably slot to the bullpen. Yeah, I think yeah. come postseason, Rich Hill is more than likely a bullpen arm because he's not a guy that goes more than four or five innings anyway. I mean, in a hypothetical where they trade for John Gray, and by mid-October, you're DeGrom, Carrasco, Stroman, Walker – Gray with McGill either in Syracuse or in the bullpen and Hill in the bullpen. Mm-hmm. So I think they might, that's why, again, why I think they're not as reliever heavy as they might be, as people might think. But if they do bring in a reliever, it'll definitely, be, I think it'll be, it's, it's more likely it's a back end, well, back end of the market type guy, not back yeah. in the bullpen, back into the market, like a change. Well, all right. I mean, that, that was, a lot talk about we went a lot longer than i thought we were going to this went on for quite some time yeah (laughs) uh but i mean a lot of good stuff that happened in this in this little little interview i guess if you want to call it that uh so i have to give a a great thank you for coming on and everyone can follow you uh what's what's i know you you recently changed it so what's your twitter handle right now jack w ramsey jack w ramsey with an e not an a there you go i appreciate thank you for having me on i'd love to come back on again and Maybe after the deadline, we can sit down and, you know, after August 2nd, deadline will be gone. Kumar Rocker signing deadline will be gone and we can look back and see how wrong we were about everything. <laughs> Hopefully, man. We'll see. Hopefully I'm wrong and Jose Brios does become a Met. We'll see. But uh, again, give him a follow at Jack W. Ramsey. Uh, again, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.